Now, I now have the pleasure of welcoming to the stage today's moderator, Professor Peter Casarella, professor over at Duke University and a longtime partner of the Institute who will introduce our distinguished panel. Peter, take it away. Thank you, Michael. Muy buenas. Good evening to everyone, to everyone in Chicago, to everyone with me here on the East Coast, whatever time zone you joined us from, I wish you a good evening. And thank you for joining us for Beauty and Justice in the City with a special focus on the restoration of St. Adalbert's in Pilsen. So why look for beauty and justice in the city? I'd like to very briefly begin by recalling the letter that Pope Francis wrote at the beginning of his pontificate, March 3rd, 2015, to the Grand Chancellor of the Catholic University of Argentina on the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the founding of that Faculty of Theology. Just two brief excerpts. Pope Francis said, teaching and studying theology means living on a border, one in which the gospel meets the needs of the people to whom it should be proclaimed in an understandable and meaningful way. We must guard against a theology that is exhausted in academic dispute or one that looks at humanity from a glass castle. You learn so as to live. Theology and holiness are inseparable. And further on, he says, do not settle for a desktop theology. Your place for reflection is la frontera, the border. Do not fall into the temptation to embellish, to add fragrance, to adjust them to some degree and domesticate them. Even good theologians like good shepherds have the odor of the people of the street and by the reflection pour oil and wine onto the wounds of mankind. Theology is an expression of a church which is a field hospital, which lives her mission of salvation and healing in the world. These are very memorable word, words, just like when Pope Francis said in Madison Square Garden, God lives in the city. So we're looking tonight for beauty and justice in the city so as not to settle for desktop theology, to bring together theory and praxis, to bring together the search for what is beautiful and just and lasting together with a commitment to being alongside those on the margins. We're gonna look in a special way at the plan to restore St. Adalbert's. And I wanna say from the outset that we're very, very aware that this is something under review by the Holy See, and this is a process that is taking place and we're not trying to tip the balance in that important um, and judicial process. But we thought it would be a great idea to have someone to knew about, who knew about that plan to talk from the perspective of the people of Chicago, Latinos in Chicago, and to use that as a point of departure for talking about beauty and justice. Now to the introduction of our two great speakers tonight. The first speaker is Dr. Michelle Gonzalez Maldonado. Michelle was appointed on July 1st, 2020 as the Dean of the University of Scranton's College of Arts and Sciences. Before 2020, Dr. Maldonado served as Assistant Provost of Undergraduate Education at the University of Miami, where she also served since 2016 as the Executive Director of the Office of Academic Enhancement and also as a Professor of Religious Studies. In that capacity, she worked tirelessly, this goes back to last week's uh, session, to promote and advance uh, the good of Latinas in higher education. She's done TED Talks on the hiddenness of Latina intellectuals. 
Her CV is much too long to go too in depth, but let me at least mention some of my favorites among her monographs. And that would include her book of 20, 2003, Sorwana, Beauty and Justice in the Americas, from which we take our title tonight. Uh, the Dyad, Embracing Latina Spirituality and Creating God's Image from 2007, 2009. And then a long list of books on Caribbean religiosity, Caribbean religious history with um, NYU Press in 2010. A very, very important book also with NYU Press from 2014, A Critical Introduction to Religion in the Americas. And most recently, she's co-authored with William Green and Aman Dasandi, Judaism, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the history of monotheism, and she will be the editor of the forthcoming Oxford Handbook of Caribbean Religions. And we're so grateful to Michelle to being with us tonight. Also, I want to introduce Juan F. Soto. Juan is the executive director of Gamaliel of Metro Chicago. He's worked tirelessly as a community organizer in the Pilsen neighborhood. Juan and I first met when he was taking a summer course that I had the privilege of teaching at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. And we had a lively discussion of something that Juan knows more about than practically anyone, the Fiesta do Sol, one of the largest Mexican-American cultural events in the Midwest, which he directs every summer in Chicago. Juan, no less important, next Thursday, will receive virtually his Master in Pastoral Studies from the Catholic Theological Union, as well as Certificate in Hispanic Theology and Ministry. Welcome, Juan. So without further ado, I'll recognize Michelle, and each of the speakers will have 20 minutes to get our discussion going. Michelle, please go ahead. Thank you very much. I want to begin by thanking the Lumen Christi Institute for inviting me to be a part of this event this evening. I also want to thank Juan Soto for sharing, sharing this panel with me and being able to have a conversation with him. And finally, of course, I want to thank my, my old friend. I realize that, that Peter and I have known each other for 21 years, so, so old, unfortunately, qualifies now. My old friend and colleague, um, Peter Casarella, who I've had um, so many conversations with about the theme of beauty and justice. So I want to begin by saying that that I continue to to struggle with um, with Zoom and and sort of and and this will tie into some of the comments I'm going to make. But um, I really continue to struggle with uh, our lack of embodiment, and and that's something I'm going to talk about in relationship to aesthetics. But um, and and sort of speaking to to a, a very blank screen and not even being physically disengaged, but but even visually disengaged from the audience. So I just kind of want to recognize that that's always something that that has me a little bit off, shall we say, in my game um, in these types of forums. Um, I will also say that um, this past uh, year and a half has 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 made talking about beauty and justice much more difficult. Um, whether it's the devastating effects of the pandemic and the social inequalities it has revealed um, in our labor force, in our healthcare systems, um, to name just you know a few of many things, um, to the murder of George Floyd um, and the continued um, killing of unarmed black men and women in this country. And, and as we know in Chicago, Latino youth um, by police officers. It's, it's, I just wanna recognize that place 
Um, that's not to say I'm going to come from a point of pessimism, you know, because it, it to talk about beauty and justice is to be ultimately optimistic. But I also just kind of want to recognize that that we are coming from it as very different and and depending on um, our own personal losses and experiences in the past 18 months, not not only different, but but also in some cases a, a very damaged perspective right in, in terms of of personal and and social, frankly, collective suffering. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that. Um, I am a systematic theologian, though, so I will quickly jump into the abstraction because I know that for me, really, it's to kind of lay the foundation of our conversation and then have Juan sort of engage us in a more concrete level. And so here I really want to focus on this interaction of theological aesthetics and ethics, or as the title of, of tonight's evening um, indicates, beauty and justice. Um, theological aesthetics is a field I've worked on since, since my doctoral program um, over 20 years ago. It's really looking at not only the role of beauty, but, but also materiality, which I'll get to in a second in, 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 in theology and theological expression. But I want to begin with ethics. And the reason I want to begin with ethics is because I think we, we are living in a world where we are often more comfortable with ethics, right? So ethics is often framed um, in terms of justice. Um, and I will say that when I speak about justice, I'm very informed by the different liberation theologies across the Americas that are trying to whether it's Latin American liberation theologians talking about the cry of the poor, whether it's um, theologians from the global south as a whole, speaking of um, theology from the underside of history, whether it's Latino and Latina theologians emphasizing how issues of immigration, culture, and assimilation um, shape our everyday lives and experiences of church and our theological worldviews, or as, as black and womanist theologians have taught us in terms of race and racism in this country. Um, for me, that's very much a huge part of my intellectual and continues to be framework. It's also um, a lens through which I have pastorally engaged the church. Um, however, it can't be the only lens. Um, you know, we can't reduce theology to ethics. Um, and there are a couple of reasons why, why that's problematic. One is if we, can, if we don't look at what we call intersectionality, right? How our different facets of our identity, whether it's race, class, gender, um, disability, sexual orientation, um, how these intersections define us. If we only talk about Latinos and Latinas as oppressed, for example, and an oppressed population, and I'm not in any way denying that Latino and Latino populations experience um, marginalization in this country, but they experience it in different ways. Um, and, and, and to reduce a community to being oppressed, to only looking at them through the lens of ethics defines their experience by oppression. And this is something we can talk about in the Q&A. Um, it's something as a light-skinned Latina, as a Cuban-American who was raised upper middle class, as a PhD who is now a dean of um, a college at a Jesuit university. 
my experience is very different than my my husband who came here, um, who moved here with me, gosh, about 14, I think it was, yeah, 14, 15 years ago. It's, it's 15 now. Um, just in case it's being recorded and he's watching, he'll watch it. Um, so 15 years ago, who is brown skinned from an indigenous community in Guatemala, who only has a high school education and um, who became a US citizen last year, um, primarily because he was scared that his residency would not protect him, that something would happen and his immigration status would be questioned, challenged, taken away. Um, and I recognize that, that I, I use the two of us in spite of the fact that he's married to me and therefore um, has class privilege, right? But our historical experiences and being in this country, him as a more recent immigrant, me as a US born um, Cuban American are very different, right? So, so part of what we need to look at too um, that I fear does not happen when we just look through the lens of ethics is that we homogenize and simplify the complexity of Latino and Latina communities. The other thing I, I worry about, and, and I think actually Peter and I have talked about this, but, but now being um, dean at a college where um, the majority of my programs, um, of the college's programs are with undergraduate students. We have very few um, graduate programs in the College of Arts and Sciences. You know, the one thing that that really also has um, stood out to me is is the reduction um, of so many young Catholic women and men of Catholicism to service. Right. So to be a good Catholic is to engage in service to um, and it has nothing to do with a theme I'm going to talk about shortly sacramentality. It has nothing to do with an engagement with the church. Um, in a very concrete way. And, and so service becomes normative for, exclusively normative is a better way of putting it, for identifying um, Catholic identity. Um, so let's talk about a sex. Wow, the time goes by faster than I thought. So an emphasis on theological aesthetics is really responding to um, a lot of things that even when I started writing about this 20 years ago, we, we face today. Um, it's, it's interesting to kind of go back and kind of say, okay, what, what, what have, what's changed? And, and some things have, but some things have not. You know, we live in a world where beauty is subjective, right? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And theological aesthetics refutes that claim. It says that beauty has a divine origin. Right, when we talk about the transcendentals, the good, the true, and the beautiful, that, that beauty with a capital B does exist in this world um, and is not just opinion, is not just subjective taste, so to speak. And, and because we live in a world today where beauty has become subjective, we've seen this huge um, what I would call a divorce of theology and the arts, right? So, so you know, if we look at the history of art, particularly um, Western European art, art in, in, in countries that have been colonized by the Western world, um, we see that the historical intimacy of 
the aesthetic of the painting, of the sculpture, of the play, of the poem um, is no longer saturated with religious worldviews as it once was. Um, and I would argue in part, art has become increasingly irrelevant as a result of that because it has lost its um, ability to convey truth in a way it has, um, it did in the past. You know, my, my former mentor who actually introduced me um, and Peter, the late Alejandro Garcia Rivera, um, who was a brilliant mind and um, very formative in my own development and work in theological aesthetics. Um, in his second book, The Community of the Beautiful, he says, he asks the question, he says, theological aesthetics ask the questions, what moves the human heart? And I think that notion of what moves us, which is not theoretical analysis, which is not sadly academic theology usually, um, but instead is poetry, is literature, is art, is symbol, is ritual. If we don't see the aesthetic as a conduit for knowledge, as an expression of the human experience of the sacred, we lose something fundamental, not only, I would say not only to religion, not only to Christianity, not only to Catholicism, but our own humanity. Um, and so for me, I, I think about this a lot, um, not only again, as I said, working a lot with undergraduate students, but, but also as a mother of um, two, two, they wouldn't like boys, but two, two teenagers, so they're 13 and 15. Um, I think about how do we make religion attractive to young people? How do we move their hearts? How does the church move them to want to become active participants in their sacramental life? And for me, this really, you know, theological aesthetics, it, it has implications, not just for academic theology, which, um, you know, we can also talk about later is, is useful to a certain extent. Um, but, but more importantly, it, it has implications for how we understand our bodies, how we understand liturgy, how we understand ritual. Um, and for me, perhaps most important and most odd to speak about um, on Zoom is, is sacramentality, right? How do we see sacramentality as aesthetic action? How do we see, um, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you all, but, but for me, there has been, um, there's been a, a sort of crisis to me in the past year of, of, of lack of embodiment. Right, lack of, 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 you know, we talk about in the flesh so much um, as Catholics. And I have missed being in the flesh um, deeply. Um, and for me, it's such a reminder then of why we need the aesthetic, why it has to be definitive. <sighs> of who we are and how we are church.
The other thing I would say, and, and this is something that, that I worry about as well, is the aesthetic is often seen as a luxury. Well, we don't need it. Um, you know, it, 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 it's, it's, it's something that, that, that's nice, but, um, is, is, is extra for lack of a better word. Um, this is what happens when you don't read your talk. I, I, when you just go from notes, you know, for me, um, I want, I, I do want to, um, you know, I, I was moved by this when I read this when I was 17 years old, um, at Georgetown University as an undergraduate, um, the words of the poet Audre Lorde, when she writes, poetry is not a luxury. It is a vital necessity of our existence. It forms the quality of delight within we predicate our hopes and dreams toward survival and change. First made into language, then into idea then into more tangible action. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. I'm gonna say that last line again. Poetry is the way we help give name to the nameless so it can be thought. And for me there, she's speaking about the aesthetic as a whole and she's speaking about the experience of the sacred and how what moves the human heart and our response to being moved is often through aesthetic expression, is often through ritual, is often through um, art, is often through the non-intellectual, no, not non-intellectual, but non, shall we say, academic discourse. However, and I want to kind of, I know I only have a few minutes left. Um, I also want to add that, that when talking about the aesthetic and beauty, we have to recognize that it's not innocent, right? And that's why this evening's titled Beauty and Justice, right? They both need to go hand in hand to balance each other, right? Because beauty must be tempered by moral responsibility. Um, we need to have that unity um, and frankly, truth as well, but frankly, systematic theologians, we've been writing about truth for centuries. So I, you know, I kind of want to take a pause on that one and, and focus more on, on the, on, we kind of have the true covered in many ways, but, but talk about um, the good and the beautiful. Um, but really the three need to be interacting with each other um, and you're not privileging one over the other. And I do want to say sort of as, as, as in, in sort of in a way of conclusions, since we are talking about Latino and Latino theology, since we're talking about the city, um, the importance of ritual and space as a form of identity making and identity expression. Um, and, and I want to say that in, in sort of the if you want the justice way, right? So, and, and there've been many studies written about this um, and looking at, for example, in Chicago, um, particularly Mexican American Catholic rituals and their role in identity formation in terms of creating a space for the sacred, for Latino and Latina communities in the city through ritual and popular expression. Um, and and I, 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 that's a very important piece. But I also want to talk about ritual as a site of joy. 
ritual as a site of celebration. And the importance of creating that ritualized space within the life of urban communities, not only to say here we are with our struggles and our histories and our contributions to the broader, to the broader, broader church and to the broader community, but also to say, Miranos, presente, come join our rituals, come share our joy and our pride in who we are and how we contribute to the church and also how we contribute to our communities. Thank you very much. Thank you, Michelle. That was amazing. And perfect segue to Juan. Juan. Gracias y buenas noches. Um, first of all, I want to thank um, uh, Christy Lumen for this inv invitation, and more importantly, to my El Profe, Peter Casarella, and also thank, you know, my panel partner, Dr. Michelle Maldonado. Gracias for being here, uh, and thank you for this opportunity. So beauty and justice. As I, as I reflect on what we are about to engage in, in this theme, um, I can't say enough about um, that we're living in new times, uh, especially that some are beginning to open up their eyes and some their hearts to the structural institutional racism that uh, this COVID pandemic has actually exposed. It has exposed the ugliness of the human condition, but I also like to say that it also exposed the beauty of humanity and compassion when people felt desperate there was also compassion in the moments where people came together as community. And for, for, for me as a faith-based community organizer, this is so, so relevant. Um, as an organizer, um, I work and have been with the Gamaliel Network now in September, it will be 30 years. Um, has taught me a lot about um, where we are and where we want to be. Um, and as I talk and mentor younger organizers or organizers coming into this, this work, um, you know, they always ask this question about what's the, the most uh, struggling uh, points in, in our work. And really it's, listening to one another. And I don't think we listen enough, uh, escuchar a nuestra gente, of what hurts them, but also what gives them joy. And uh, as I share with, with our fellow organizers, I say, we were born for this time, even with the challenge of COVID. Um, and one of the things that I, I uh, I always want to move 
in my work is not that it, this is a job or even a career. Now, tipping the scales at 30 years as a community organizer, I don't call this just a job. This is my ministry. And I've been blessed uh, with being uh, supported on many fronts, both at home uh, and at um, the place where I, I do my ministry, which is in the community. Um, I direct a community-based organization called Pilsen Neighbors Community Council. Uh, it's been around now for uh, 67 years and has really engaged the history of the, of the organization in community transformation. Um, when I came into the Pilsen community um, 30 years ago, uh, almost every public school and every church in Pilsen was busting at the seams. You, it was standing room only in the churches, as well as overcrowded situation in every public school in the community. It's a thriving, sophisticated, moving community that has made its name as an activist community. It is one of the communities that has uh, still survived many onslaughts by politicians, others that want to define what Pilsen is for their own political benefit, but it's the grassroots community, los abuelitos, las abuelitas, the paleteros, the, the charisma and energy of the community that makes it so thriving and so exciting. Unfortunately, we are faced uh, with an ever-changing community. And in this changing community, we are seeing families being displaced because of higher rents or higher income uh, property taxes. Uh, our schools are beginning to see a dwindling of children in the public schools. But we also see that churches and within the Chicago Archdiocese, the church consolidations. One of the things that we are always mindful of and have brought to the attention of the community is to be self-defined. We define ourselves by how active we are, the roots, the engagement, the approach to what we call home in Pilsen. Um, for those that may not know the history uh, of Pilsen, we also have to acknowledge the many other immigrant communities that have formed this community, even from the turn of the century, that came from Eastern European, the Czechs, the Slovaks, the Polish, the German. And we see that the, they made roots and structures and the beauty of their uh, culture 
is still very present even in a changing community as Pilsen. It wasn't until uh, the 1960s and the 70s where families were being pushed out because of old man Daly, uh, Mayor Daly that really had a plan to push families out of uh, the central business district to make way for a new plan called the Chicago 21 plan. Some of us are still living with some of those remnants of that plan, but it was this organization along with many other organizations at that time that pushed back, that organized, that said, we are going to define ourselves of who we are. In a more recent article that I read uh, in the Chicago Tribune on May 6th, that said that Greektown, which is a neighboring community just north of Pilsen, doesn't have many Greek families living in Greektown, but yet the restaurants are there. There's a hunger to hold on to an identity and nostalgia in that community. Pilsen, because of its nature and its activism, really has moved itself to organize for self-determination. And it is in this spirit, in this spirit that I was trained in, that I became uh, an organizer, and in what I see in the community, uh, even with the, the parishes. There are three parishes currently that exist that are doing ministry as we, we know the Catholic Church structure to be. And that's St. Procopius, St. Pius, and St. Paul. Three very wonderful, beautiful communities of leaders that still hold on to that vision of wanting to have a community that they call for themselves. But enough a little bit about the community, the organization itself where uh, Professor Casarela uh, has, has already lifted up. I organize the largest Latino festival in the country where we draw 1.3 million people in a four-day event, all organized by community residents and people that have a vision for themselves. Sometimes they say, well, Juan, it's your vision. Actually, what I do is I really you know, project what they tell me back to them and, they say, and I say, make it happen. And seven years ago, I met um, Elizabeth Roman, uh, who is the president of the National Catholic Council for Hispanic Ministries. And we engaged in a conversation around the work and the call for our faith to be demonstrated in community. And um, because of her vision and the vision of the leaders, we created 
um, and a, a Catholic service, what we call La Misa del Pueblo, that's attached to Fiesta del Sol. And we get thousands of people attending La Misa del Pueblo because the call was, if they're not coming into this church structure, let's bring the church to the community. And that really gives us a lot of, um, not only uh, a call to do our own ministry, but we have to meet people to where they're at. We have to bring church to where they're at. So I wanna pivot a little bit to the call and the process of this discernment that I began um, with many other folks uh, in Pilsen that was brought to me by Sister Dominga Zapata, who challenged me. And if you have not met Sister Dominga Zapata, she's not your conventional, you know, community, you know, Catholic, quiet nun. She gets you agitated. She makes you move. She gets you to do things. And she pulled me by the ear and says, Juan, you have to do the Quinto Encuentro. And the Quinto Encuentro that was brought to the Pilsen community comes out of a call to do this fifth national encuentro of Hispanic Latino ministry, which is a historic ecclesial gathering of Catholics throughout the entire country to call for the, the participation of young people and Catholics that want to see a self-determination of Latino ministry in the Catholic Church. And I was part of that process. Sometimes a little bit like, what am I doing? But most of the time being guided and accompanied by Sister Dominga and saying, this is a calling. And much of the work that we are doing calls us to not only draw us to this calling of discernment and accompaniment, but to call us to reimagine how we do church. I can't stress enough, I have conversations every single day with people across the country and in the neighborhood of how they just wish they had the opportunity to hug the person that they love to see at mass on Sunday. We have gotten to the point of the human touch is so important to us as ministers and as people of faith. And this call really is a challenge to us to reimagine how we think about church these days. So now I want to talk a little bit about the St. Adalbert's uh, project or a discernment that we are on. But first of all, I want to acknowledge and recognize that St. Adalbert's is the patrimony of St. Paul Catholic Church, right? 
It's active and involved parishioners taking a very vibrant and vital role in the community themselves. It's where the Renew My Church has its um, challenges, but it's also its opportunities to figure out how we do church together, and it's through relationship building. So in recent years, Providence of God also has closed, which was on the east end of Pilsen. Holy Trinity Catholic Church has been closed. And most recently, as recently as 2019, St. Adalbert's Catholic Church has been closed and consolidated into the patrimony of St. Paul's. So for those that are watching us from across the country and may not be familiar with St. Adalbert's, I just wanna give you a little bit about St. Adalbert's Church and a little bit of history. St. Adalbert's Church is located on 17th and Polina. And actually uh, in Chicago, where it was organized in, in 1874 by Bishop Thomas Foley to serve Polish families who settled in the predominantly Bohemian district, which we now know and call as Pilsen. The third Polish parish founded in Chicago, St. Adalbert, served generations of Polish immigrants and their US-born children. At its peak, parish membership outnumbered more than 4,000 families with more than 2,000 children enrolled in the school. 2,000 children enrolled in the school. And from the 1990s through the depression, the parish church, became the hub of activity for a lot of Polish American community in Pilsen. And shortly after that, St. Adalbert's church was um, founded and appointed Father uh, Granowski began an ambitious building program to actually build what we now know as St. Adalbert's. It sits on a little over two acres which has a, the church structure, beautiful church structure, has a convent, a rectory, a school, its own parking lot, and a beautiful garden area. So on June 16th, hundreds of former parishioners returned to St. Adalbert's to attend a special mass commemorating its 100th anniversary of the founding of the parish. Then in, late, in the late summer of 1974, Bishop Abramowitz appealed to friends and former parishes to contribute to a special collection in Polish parishes throughout the Archdiocese on the weekend of August 31st through September 1st in 1974 that drew to the rebuilding of the deterioration of the, the congregation. So to rebuild it uh, and invest in that, in that church property. We begin our, our work in our history, even more so that um, as in June of 2019, after consultation uh, with the Archdiocese uh, of Chicago Presbyterian Council, Colonel uh, 
Supich, the Archbishop of Chicago, issued a decree that St. Adalbert's would no longer be a place of worship and was desanctified due to the conditions of the buildings and associated costs. The Archdiocese of Chicago officials has stated in regards to the future of St. Adalbert's campus that any plans for the property would be sensitive to the desires of the community and other constituent groups. So we have to imagine and reimagine what is the, the sacredness and the call of discernment for that property. I alone cannot do that. And it is not up to me. It is up to the community to define what the purpose and the goal of that church structure is. And I do know that there are many groups out there that would like to see a call to bring it back to either being a shrine or to have um, you know, mass there. These are unfortunate times and those are the struggles and the challenges that are brought to us every single time where we are in a changing community. This time there's no different. Congregations as we see across the archdiocese and not only a, a Catholic perspective, but also other denominations in the Chicagoland area are seeing a decline, not only in membership, but a resurgence in how we imagine church and how we engage in ministry as we move uh, through this. So I wanna go to uh, a call by uh, Pope Francis as uh, in his document uh, that he issued to the Congregation for the Clergy um, in March of uh, July, of, I'm sorry, in July of 2020, where he calls for, he says, at the beginning of his, of his own ministry, he called the importance of creativity, meaning, meaning thereby seeking new ways, that is seeking how best to proclaim the gospel, to respect, in respect of this, the Holy Father concluded by saying, the church and also the code of canon law gives us innumerable possibilities, much freedom to seek uh, in these things. We have to value the parish, we have to value the, the community, and we have to value this nuevo encuentro of dialogue. This culture of encounter is conducive to dialogue, solidarity, openness to others, as it is a person-centered, right? Naturally, the parish must be a place that brings people together and fosters long-term personal relationships, thereby giving people a sense of belonging and being wanted. The Holy See also calls that the parish community is called truly to be the master of the art of accompaniment. If deep, if deep roots 
are planted, the parish will become a place where solitude is overcome, which was affect, which has affected so many lives, as well as being a sanctuary where the thirsty come to drink in the midst of their journey and at the center of constant missionary outreach. So our call as the people of God is our call to do ministry and a call to reimagine places of worship where we continue and would like to continue doing our missionary call for bringing people closer to God. With that, that's my presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Juan. That was also amazing. Uh, and I just want to thank you not only for that uh, sharing that story, but also for all that you've done to provide a voice for the voiceless and representing the, the people of God with us here tonight. So the first question in the chat was from an anonymous uh, person, and it has to do with sacred space in the curriculum. I think it was um, uh, directed towards high school curricula, but I'm going to broaden the question and pose it to both of you. What are some of the ways that educators in the broadest sense, including educators on the ground, community organizers, can put an appreciation of sacred space back into the everyday life of students and young people? Michelle, do you want to start with that? So I think that's a really tough one. I, I, I think in part, what we need to do is translate it into language that's accessible to them and, and perhaps, you know, going to the aesthetic into symbols, right? And that that are accessible to those demographics. I mean, for the Latino and Latino community, we're the youngest population in this country. Um, and I often worry, I know at least in my world of academic theology, um, I know a lot of my colleagues, Latino, Latina, and otherwise, who, who, who teach theology in very passionate ways that speak to students. However, that doesn't translate into our writing. That often doesn't, you know what I mean? Like that doesn't translate into the academic life of a theologian, of going to conferences and speaking to other theologians. And so it it's almost like we need to take that skill set that set that so many of us have. Um, I say us because I think of myself as a pretty good teacher. Um, and and how do we how do we we compartmentalize that right? We we know how to speak to young people. We know how to get them excited and interesting interested and engaged in thinking about the church and their identity and and wanting and craving to think theologically. But for some reason, we're not very good at translating it outside of the classroom setting. Thank you, Michelle. Juan, this would be a good chance to plug Fiesta del Sol. <laughs> well, uh, thank you, uh, Profe. Um, so that's why we did the Misa del Pueblo, because we brought it in an accessible way to, to the masses. And let me tell you, I still get chills every time that even our, the, the, the volunteers, most of which are under the age of 25 years old, 
and they go to mass. They, they stop what they're doing and they come to mass on Sunday at Fiesta del Sol because we're, we're making it that they hear it and that they want to be participants. I think we need to also understand that, you know, part of not just a curriculum, but the signs of social justice and what social justice means to the young people nowadays. Excellent, thank you, Juan. So the next question is sort of specific to the history of Chicago, but it would warm the heart of Cardinal George. It's about the connection between the Mexicans and the Anglo-Irish community in the 18th, 19th century. I'm gonna ask Mr. Albert Kazel if he'd like to voice that question live, but uh, don't, don't feel compelled to give an answer. Mr. Kazel? I think we lost him. Uh, his question was um, about the connection between Latinx incomers and the experience of Anglo-Irish community here in the 18th and 19th century, whether there is some connection between those two. But with that in mind, uh, we had something. Okay, we have two experts in the history of Chicago on the call here. I'll first recognize Sarah Bond. Dr. Sarah Bond is an expert on the architecture of the churches in Chicago. Sarah, would you like to voice your question? Hi, nice to see you. Um, yes, mine was um, for Juan. Can you tell us of any other concrete proposals um, that are out there right now for St. Adalbert's, um, especially any that keep it as a sacred space of some kind? I was inspired by what you said about people's desire for that, and I've read about that. Um, is there anything out there right now? I know there was one proposal for a music school, but that fell through. Yes, uh, Sarah, I, I am familiar with, with the one that kind of fell through um, with the music school. Um, there is one other proposal uh, that, that I also am aware of by the Society of St. Adalberts. That's the name of, of an organization that has um, for quite a few years have all also tried to um, move a proposal forward regarding keeping the, the church itself as a shrine. Um, but I don't know the details of, of that. I do know that we are in a discernment process right now that calls to reimagine that, but we're still in the discernment stages that we really would like to, you know, move that conversation um, with as many parties as, uh, as we can to try to hold on to, to that. We, what we don't want, and what I've heard, and not just we or me, what we don't, what we have heard is we don't want that property to be sold to developers for condos or luxury you know, homes. That is not what's needed in the community. That is something that I think almost across the board comes as a way of do not sell it to developers, right? Let's keep the sacred space of it um, intact. We have Dr. Deborah Cantor, another expert on the history of Mexican Catholics in Chicago from Albion College, I believe. Deborah, would you like to uh, pose your question to Juan? Okay. 
Um, sure. Um, thank you all. This was a super interesting discussion. Um, first, I, I just would like to, um, before asking my question, respond to Sarah. Um, last summer, there were discussions going on about creating a um, set of Catholic archives in the St. Adelbert space of um, actually like building a freestanding building on the old parking lot. So um, like bringing together archives of different religious communities and then, you know, turning the former sanctuary into some kind of museum. So that is a discussion that I don't think it's dead, but I don't know how alive it is. You know, we had a thing called a pandemic. Um, but I was kind of struck by Juan's, I think Juan, you said that Renew My Church brings um, opportunities <laughs> as well as challenges. And I've attended three church closings in Pilsen. I never hear anybody talking about opportunities. So what, what are those opportunities? I just feel like so, it's like attending a funeral every time I go to one of these church closings, right? And people for years are just heartbroken about having lost a more intimate community and having to go into often a slightly larger one and where they don't know people for generations. So please share. Sure. And, and Deborah, I read your book. It's an amazing book. Thank you. Um, so, you know, when I, when I talk about opportunities, I talk about it as an opportunity where, you know, to foster dialogue when communities are estranged or not talking to each other. Even when I go to my family or, or when I've had family that has passed away, it's also an opportunity to meet my lost long, you know, cousin that I didn't meet and we reconnect. Uh, I think, you know, when it comes to the approach that, I, that, that organizing brings in, is the community of creating or the opportunity of creating relationships, right? If we are, it is painful. I wanna acknowledge that too. It is painful. It is painful for all parties. No one would like to see their home parish. Matter of fact, my home parish is closing and I'm on that committee through Renew My Church to, to close that. So it is painful uh, to see that, but I also see that there's also opportunity to engage and uh, reimagine what needs to happen. If we're stuck to physical structures, then we're not doing our, our ministerial work and our call. Okay, let me pose a, a question to Dr. Maldonado. Um, just to, to go back to what you were saying about the, the new challenge, the multiple challenges in the pandemic and trying to use that as a context and even possibly a source of hope uh, for talking about beauty and justice. You're now in the role of an administrator at a large Jesuit university. How can you talk a little bit about how you want to promote uh, the dialogue between the that will go beyond the urgency of the immediate uh, in the midst of all these crises we're facing? What are some of the innovations you've had since you've gone into administration to, to make beauty and justice something concrete? Yeah, thanks. I, I, I think that, um, I think like everyone in higher education, we've been in crisis mode for the past year. And I think that that includes administrators like me um, and, and folks with uh, 
bigger problems and higher up the ladder than myself, such as presidents and provosts and board of trustees, but also, frankly, professors in the classroom trying to adjust to remote teaching, to things like Zoom, to, to what we call hybrid teaching, right? Having half your class in the, in, in the room and the, and the others um, virtual because of, you know, room capacities. And, and so, you know, in many ways, um, one thing I've, I've tried not to do is to, you know, which is maybe is, let's see if I don't contradict myself, trying not to just live in the moment because, because the moment is, is so um, overwhelming. And, and I think one of the things that at least for me, and, and I'm, I'm sort of emerging out of this, you know, as, as I'm vaccinated, my husband's vaccinated, uh, my children, thank you, Pfizer will hopefully be vaccinated soon. Um, is, is we've, we've lived for the past year without hope. Um, and, and I mean, hope in the sense of you don't dare to look forward to anything, right? Because it's probably not going to happen. So, so one of the things I've been thinking about is how do we introduce hope back in our lives and, and not be scared, right? To have that hope. I think in terms of, of universities, um, and, and Catholic universities. Um, for me, I know I'll be starting a conversation um, this upcoming year about um, what is the identity of Jesuit and Catholic education, right? In, in, in our current context and, and what is distinctive about a, a Jesuit and Catholic education in the world we're living in today. Um, and that is not only forward thinking, it's also a way to kind of comprehensively bring the university community together. Um, because to me, I should also say on top of the pandemic, we like every university, um, and, and I suspect many of our churches have also been dealing with issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, have been looking at um, the ways in which we have benefited from and participated from white privilege. Um, and so, to me, it's 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 wanting to hold on to those conversations and those realities, but but also say let's let's dare to look outside the immediate, right? And and let's dare to to look at the bigger picture and 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 have hope and plan um, in ways that I think have affected. At least I know personally, I have I have let myself um, not do, and I think institutionally we 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 haven't been able to because we've had to live so responsibly in the moment. Thank you. That is hopeful. Oh, oh hey, maybe um, I won't speak again after this. Then <laughs> we have a, a comment from Stephen Wojcik. If you'd like to to voice it live. Yes, I just uh, wanted to respond to the question uh, about specific concrete plans for St. Adelbert. I've been involved with the, the, the original group, the St. Adelbert Preservation Society, which is some of the former parishioners who live in the neighborhood, as well as some of the other groups, the Society of St. Adelbert that was mentioned. And then there are a couple other groups. They all have, they're all working together, so that's good. Um, and they want to preserve the church as a shrine, but also be open to sacred art 
and sacred music events, concerts, but then also perform community and social service work for the community. And then also host cultural events, whether they're Mexican um, or Polish or other uh, cultural events that are appropriate for a church um, and the, the communities that are represented or have been represented by St. Adelbert Church. And if you, if I could put a plug in for St. Adelbert Church, um, it is uh, one of the few churches in Chicago, there's an identical church almost, that's a Roman basilica type architecture on the inside. Uh, it's very, um, uh, not unusual in that it doesn't have, um, it didn't have a lot of statues and other things because they wanted to keep it like a Roman basilica. Uh, so I would recommend that if you are in Chicago, um, of course you can't go inside now, but hopefully you'll be able to go inside someday, but you can read about it definitely. And there's also a, 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 the original organ from the church, which I forgot, uh, what the make of it is, but it's one of the few of that type of organ that's still existing with the leather. Um, it has the leather bellows and everything original on it. And I know the organ enthusiast groups would love to uh, uh, attend concerts uh, and hear that organ. So but just a little bit, I uh, hope I didn't take too much time on what people want for St. Adelbert uh, Church. Juan, do you want to respond to that? Or there's another comment about Pilsen. Should I, uh, would you be willing to wait and then respond to both of them together? Okay, Ernie Rosado, do you want to go next? Just briefly. Ernie's question was this. I'm not sure if that's coming through. Uh, Pilsen uh, neighbors revenues dropped significantly from 2018 to 2019. Um, uh, it's past has been to combat community deterioration, defensive and human rights, and to affect other school-related activities. What current work is going on in Pilsen neighbors? How is the neo-colonialism many call gentrification harming or helping the community and Pilsen neighbors? Uh, those, are, those are two very good questions. Um, much like um, I think most organizations um, that have struggled through, through the pandemic, our work really uh, resides on education and education initiatives. We formed um, and are the, the lead organizers in the Pilsen Education Task Force. Uh, and one of the things that we've done is we looked at uh, the, the drop in enrollment in the public schools and uh, uh, six years ago, and said, how are we going to address this drop by thinking about every school in Pilsen having their own academic um, uh, focus, their own academic um, uh, attune. So now we have Youngman as a STEM school, Pickard School is now an IB school. We have um, Benito Juarez that actually has uh, uh, an opportunity of growth, it currently uh, holds 1,750 uh, students, most of them coming from, from Pilsen. And so one of the things that, that we do do uh, is that we are self-determined. So one of the things that we don't have is funding from um, the city or the state or any kind of federal 
funding. And so our, our, our approach is really kind of the organizers of organizers. And we have a, a Academy of Parents and Leadership that really lifts up um, the self-determination. Mostly have been uh, moms in this training program. And they become not only advocates for themselves, but for their children. And so um, we raise our own money, contributions, uh, and you know we might be a small staff, but you know, 2020 became a very big challenge, and I organized, you know, the what we call the 25th Ward uh, Community Stakeholders Call, and uh, every month we bring together 70 to 100 community-based organizations across. Uh, not only Pilsen, but the entire 25th Ward and foster that kind of communication amongst them. Thank you, Juan. We have time for just one more question. Jacob Torbeck, who's uh, dealing with the intersectionality of Latino theology at Loyola Chicago. Would you like to pose your question to Dr. Maldonado? Sure, yeah. Um, and and uh, Juan as well, if you want to um, weigh in on this. To the point about diversity and inclusion, I'm at a parish uh, on the far north side of Chicago where we are also restructuring. We were an arts-focused parish. And um, so right now we're trying to figure out how do we continue that ministry without actually having a parish anymore? Um, and I've personally had conversations and thoughts about, well, whose voices and whose aesthetics are whose missiology is being privileged when we talk about this, how are you folks handling those kinds of issues at your institutions right now? Because we're working in the same kinds of spaces between the desire to preserve this aesthetic heart, uh, Catholic identity, that kind of thing, of a location and of a people. But people are diverse and parishioners are not priests and the priests are not the archdiocese and that kind of thing. So. Go ahead. So this is a really tough question. Um, and, and I don't have the perfect answer because if I did, you know, we'd probably be doing it at the university, but, 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 but I'll say a couple of things. I, I think one thing I struggle with is too often um, diversity and inclusion efforts become tokenism. Right. So, so at the university of Scranton, we, we have an increasing Latino and Latina student population and, and the only time their presence is acknowledged is during Hispanic Heritage Month, right? And, and so there's like two or three weeks and their events and it's like, you know, the Day of the Dead celebration or this. And, and, and so they're not interwoven into the life of the community, right? Whether that's in the liturgies um, that are offered at the university or, or just how ritual life is expressed, right? So I think one thing we always have to be careful about is, um, is that I struggle with the word inclusion because, and I use it because everyone does, but, but, but inclusion implies including people in the system that already exists. And that system is broken because if it wasn't broken, they wouldn't be excluded, right? So, so I, you know, I like to use the language and I have in my own college of how do we create a culture of belonging, right? And, and when I do talk about diversity and inclusion, I, I like to include the word equity, 
right, to at least talk about how that issue intersects with diversity and inclusion. So I think one thing is, is, is always the risk of tokenism, right? Um, and second for me, I cannot um, express to you the importance of physical space. As you mentioned your, you know, you, you mentioned in your, that, that your parish was focused on the arts and, and how cultural artistic expressions can define one's experience of belonging, right? So I didn't check if anyone from Scranton was on the Zoom, but, uh, you know, I remember one of my first months at the university, they took me on the tour of the estate house, which is from the Scranton family, which yes, is where the name comes from of the city. And it's a beautiful home where the office of admissions and other important offices at the university are located. And, and when I kind of did my tour of, of the first floor, there's all this wonderful art, but I was like, you know, it's like all white men staring at me, right? And, and it's all, so, so if I'm a student of color, and this is the admissions building, which I realized with COVID, the act, you know, they start outside, the access is different, but, but what, when, when we are able to allow people into our spaces again, right, at universities um, and welcome visitors in ways that, that we currently can't right now or and are slowly being able to, you know, what does it mean for a, a prospective black student at a Jesuit university to go into the admissions area and only see white faces? right? And, and only to see one racial representation of Jesuit identity, Jesuit and Catholic identity. And so for me, um, and I did mention that to the person giving me the tour. Um, so to me, I, I can't, people, you know, that's why the aesthetic is so important, because it affects our comfort and, and our physical sense of belonging. And then the last thing I'll say is, is that all it takes is a room full of, of paintings of only white men, frankly, to make a student of color feel like this is not a welcoming place for me, right? And I think we have to recognize how we, we mark our space is, is how we define who we are. I'll put it that way. Thank you, Michelle. Juan, do you wanna add a word? Yeah, we, uh, really quickly, um, uh, it's, it's just a, a, a rich kind of conversation here, but you know, two things come and just uh, dovetailing on Dr. Maldonado's word of equity, because that's what I'm, I'm also drawn to is equity, but also relatability. Right, where, where is the sense of relatability when I walk into spaces? Where's the sense of relatability uh, when, I, when I go to, to a, a congregation? I could go to any Catholic mass around the world and you know, go through, through the same you know, standing, sitting, you know, kneeling, but where is the relatability and where I see you know, faith being drawn in? And it's also a listening you know, how do we listen to one another to be able to relate to one another? I could say more, but, you know, given the time, um, those two come uh, at the forefront. Thank you, Juan. I mean, pertinencia, belonging, it's so important vocabulary of Pope Francis, and it applies here as well. Before thanking our speakers, I just want to say that tonight we looked at, I mean, to echo uh, Vatican II, both the joys and hopes 
and the griefs and anxieties of beauty and justice in the city. And I'm very grateful that we looked at both sides of that. Uh, some of the hopes that I have moving forward is one, uh, the first in-person event for Lumen Christi will be at the Mother Cabrini Shrine. Uh, they just announced today that Kathleen uh, Sprout Cummings, my former colleague for Notre Dame, will be doing an event there on June 10th. So we have that to look forward to. And next week, of course, in the Hispanic Theology Series, we'll continue with Roberto Goitsueta and Naomi Deanda talking about in a very uh, enculturated and contextualized way about Latinx Christology. But my main thing I wanna to say to conclude is to thank our co-sponsors, to thank all of you who are here tonight. And above all, I'd ask everyone to join me in thanking our two wonderful speakers, Dr. Michelle Gonzalez Maldonado and Juan Soto from Gamaliel. Thank you both for these wonderful presentations. We really appreciate it. Gracias. So thank you for being here. Buenas noches. Buenas noches. <laughs>